Sunday morning studying the book of Revelation together. Sunday nights we go through the Bible Genesis to Revelation and we're currently in the gospel according to John and uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 2 this evening as well as the Lord's Supper as was mentioned and um, each of you are invited to that six o'clock this evening. Revelation 16. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due." I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory." And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and this, his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings uh, from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And behold, I'm coming as a thief Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl on the, uh, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath." And then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell among, upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the, of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Father, thank you today for your love for us. 
Thank you for the um, priceless gift of knowing history in advance. Even more than that, Lord, thank you for Jesus who allows us to be on the right side of you and on the right side of history, not only in these future days, but today. And we want you to know that as we look at the world around us, as we look at what we once were and what we are now as a work of your Holy Spirit, that we are thankful to be your disciples, to be your children. We're thankful to be Christians. And we're thankful, Lord, to be able to walk in your truth. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be Christians, being able to know you and to live for you. Thank you for this life. Thank you for your Son who has made all of it possible uh, for us. Thank you for the gift that he is to us, the gift that never ceases to amaze us, Lord, and is inexhaustible in his blessings. Thank you for our Savior this morning, and we thank you in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For those of you who might have been wondering, wondering in recent weeks how long it was going to be before we finally got to the other side of the seal and trumpet and bowl judgments as we have kind of uh, looked at them pretty closely, well, today is your day. Today we come to the end of uh, the uh, uh, bowl judgments and the bowl judgments are the final uh, set series of seven judgments in addition to the, the seal and the trumpet judgments to bring the fullness of God's wrath at that time uh, to an end. Remember that chapters 15 and 16 are a, a unit and they describe uh, the, the, uh, the bold judgments, all seven of them kind of uh, in their entirety. In chapter 15, we have the reaction of heaven to the anticipation of the pouring out of these bold judgments, and heaven is thrilled that this is going to occur. Not just that the, the bold judgments are going to be poured out, but because right on the other side of the pouring out of these bold judgments comes the second coming of Jesus Christ and everything begins to look quite a bit better as a result of that. In chapter 16, as we see it this morning, we have a description of the judgments uh, themselves. In verse 1, we're told that these bold judgments will proceed uh, from God himself. And uh, you notice that upon the pouring out, of the seventh of the bold judgments uh, there in verse 17 that God himself declares uh, it is done. And so the excitement of heaven, the excitement of God that all of this judgment will have done its work by that, that particular point in time and paving the way for Jesus' second coming, which we'll look at when we get into chapter 19. These final bold judgments certainly as the entire book of Revelation does, uh, gives us a strong nod toward the Old Testament. And these bold judgments definitely give a strong nod to the judgments that God brought upon the ten plagues He brought upon Egypt uh, in the book of Exodus in order to secure the release of His children, the children of Israel, from their physical bondage in the land 
uh, of Egypt. And you might remember that God secured their release by the means of ten plagues, and several of those plagues are repeated here in chapter 16. It's important to realize that of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, that Pharaoh could have repented at any time in the course of the uh, pouring out of those, those plagues and brought them uh, to an end by releasing the children of Israel as God had requested of, of him, but he didn't, so all ten plagues were uh, forced to run in their uh, full destructive uh, uh, end. It's also important to realize that when God poured out those ten plagues upon the land of Israel, uh, Egypt in the Old Testament, that they weren't haphazard, random plagues. It wasn't like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bullwinkle pulling a rabbit out of his hat or something like that. Look what I can do. There's none of that at all. Uh, each one of those plagues that he brought upon the land of Egypt to secure a particular end, his end related to things, they were very, very uh, deliberate, uh, very, very purposeful. The plagues were God's judgment upon the idols of the gods of Egypt. They were to secure the release of the children of Israel, but each one of those plagues was a judgment against the gods, and they worshipped many gods in Egypt in in those uh, days. So they were designed to expose the inability of the gods of Egypt to not only protect the land of Egypt and the people of Egypt, but to protect even themselves from Uh, the power of God with the intent that the Egyptian people and Pharaoh would reconsider the objects of their worship and turn to the worship uh, of of the Lord. And uh, for instance, uh, they worship the Nile River as a God. And so when God turns the Nile River into blood, uh, the river itself is powerless to resist and the superiority of the Lord is revealed in, in all of that. Egypt worshipped a frog-headed goddess. So that's a worst-case scenario on a blind date for sure. And uh, and so, but they they worshipped. And so, what did God do? You might remember He filled the land with frogs. After all, if something is worthy of being worshipped as a god, then it should be a great blessing to the entire nation to fill the entire nation uh, with it. But of course, it wasn't. And it's never true of any God except for the God of, of the Bible. Now, I, I don't doubt that each of these seven uh, bold judgments, once we get into heaven and we see with clarity related to them perhaps, that each of them is aimed at accomplishing things that, that we can't even fully understand uh, at, at the moment. They're not just pouring out judgment, but they're intended to communicate uh, as well. And certainly, they'll be poured out in order to expose the folly of what it is that's being worshipped by uh, the people that are alive on the earth at the time that these judgments are poured out and, uh, and exposing uh, the folly of worshipping what they were worshipping, namely the Antichrist and the image uh, of the beast rather than uh, the Lord. And they're intended to bring people to repentance. But at this point in the tribulation period, 
uh, there's not going to be a lot of repentance. Remember, too, that by the time we get to this point in the seven-year tribulation period, that the remaining population of the world is not like your neighborhood and the people in your neighborhood. It's not going to be like the people you run into at Costco. Uh, there is going to be a distillation of, of mankind uh, way, way down to a particular uh, 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 caliber of person that will still be alive and resisting God at that point. They will have rejected God and His offer of salvation repeatedly made to them uh, on the part of the 144,000, on the part of the two uh, Jewish witnesses, on the part of the angel who makes sure that every single person in the world uh, hears the gospel, God's offer of salvation during the tribulation period. They will have witnessed an innumerable multitude of people just like them in the course of these judgments from the seals to the trumpets to the bold judgments uh, come to their senses to realize the folly of worshiping the Antichrist and his image and to realize that the judgments that God is pouring out upon the world, that Antichrist is powerless against them, the image is powerless against them, Satan is powerless against them. So how in the world can they protect us? And people will turn to God in great uh, numbers, and they will witness that, and they will refuse to do that themselves. And in fact, they will make the decision then to hunt down these people that become Christians during the tribulation period and uh, put them to death, to cold-blooded murder them uh, as being treasonous toward uh, the Antichrist. They will have done all of this through the seal uh, judgments, the trumpet judgments. In the middle of all of that destruction, they will not be moved toward God in any way, and yet uh, they will remain entrenched in their hatred of God and in their love for the Antichrist. And when you have a world and a population of the world that is in that place, and it will be, then that's a world that is more than ripe for judgment. And uh, God will rise up, and he must rise up and uh, finally judge uh, such a world, and he will absolutely do it. Sometimes people ha have a problem with uh, God, uh, his judgment, even when his judgment is uh, righteous. And so it's like so many things that happen today where um, people will... Uh, attack a particular position that somebody else might have, and they're so aggressive in the attack upon the position that they don't like that they never uh, then with the same rigor uh, examine the alternative to what it is that they are attacking. And uh, here you have a situation where either God is going to win in human history or this kind of person is going to win. There are no other alternatives. And so God is going to step in and make sure that human history has uh, the conclusion that He intends it 
to, uh, to, uh, to have. And so what would be best? Would it be best to allow these people to continue on in all of their rebellion against God and violence, hunting down Christians and putting them to death, having God's people run for their life like animals of uh, 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 being... Uh, uh, animals of prey chasing them down. No, the Lord isn't going to let that kind of thing prevail. You notice in bowl number one, verse two, a foul and loathsome sore will come upon all who have refused uh, the angelic warning uh, uh, against taking the mark of the beast, having taken the mark of the beast as an expression to their loyalty to the Antichrist uh, and, and worship his image. And it is that group that will then have this a loathsome sore, some kind of a boil. Uh, it sounds like a, 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 an ulcerous kind of, uh, uh, of sore. It's very painful, very unsightly. And God just merely makes these, these people outwardly what he knows them to be uh, on the inside, and that is morally, spiritually uh, diseased and uh, corrupt. And so he uh, takes this thing, this mark that they took upon them, and they took upon them with such pride on the day, taking the mark of the beast, so proud to have it uh, upon their bodies. And then now, uh, uh, here comes the price that gets paid for rejecting God's warning and taking it upon themselves. It is interesting, and again, this heralds back to God's uh, uh, plagues upon the nation uh, of Egypt, and uh, that God here now makes a calculation between uh, different groups of people in the world. So this plague only comes upon those who have taken the mark uh, of the beast. Uh, Christians, uh, whether Jewish and that, that group of Jewish believers that will be protected by God during the tribulation period, uh, Gentile uh, believers that will become Christians during the tribulation period, uh, this plague will not come uh, upon them at all. They'll, there will be the distinction in the same way that at a certain point in which God poured the plagues out upon Egypt, he started to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the children of Israel who were in uh, the land of, of Goshen. What this tells us now as God makes this differentiation, it tells us that God's judgment here is very deliberate He's not having a fit. This is not road rage or, or the, the divine equivalent of it. He knows exactly what he's doing. His judgments have lines. They are precise. And they are aimed at exactly what he wants to aim them at for his purposes. You notice bowl number two in verse three. An angel pours out his bowl on the sea probably the Mediterranean Sea. Sea is singular, but it, it, it still the construction allows for it to be all of the seas of, of, of the world, all of the larger bodies of water in the world. The result of this bowl is that the sea became blood uh, as of a dead man. And so this mirrors one of the plagues that God poured out upon Egypt in God turning the Nile into blood uh, in, in judgment. The result of this, uh, this judgment is that every living creature in the sea will die. You might remember back in chapter 8, 
that the second trumpet judgment was blown and a third of the animal life in the seas died. Now everything dies. Now because of this judgment and then the third judgment, they basically destroy the entire water supply uh, of, of the world. And because it does that, uh, the idea is, and the understanding of these trumpet uh, judgments is that they occur very rapidly. And they probably occur over a period of just a matter of days uh, because it's impossible for life to be sustained on, in, in the light of the destruction that is going to uh, come upon it. In bowl number three in verses four through seven, the angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and uh, now the fresh water sources of, of water in the world become blood. And then John heard uh, the angel of the waters declaring in verse 5 that it declares this judgment of God to be absolutely uh, righteous. And he gives the reason for it in verse 6, and it's because uh, the, these people have shed the blood. They have murdered saints and prophets during the, the tribulation period, murdering Christians and uh, probably murdering and martyring tribulation saints numbering uh, in the tens of thousands, probably into the millions and maybe even uh, tens of millions. When God describes the number of people that will be saved during the tribulation period as being a, a, num uh, a number without number, we're talking about a very large uh, number of people. And so they have shed the blood of God's people and God gives them blood uh, to drink. And so you like blood so much, you think you're Mr. Big Shot, chasing my people around the nation, uh, around the world, because you got a hold of the power and because you can do it. And uh, well, you can have it to drink and they'll have their fill of it. And it's absolutely perfect and poetic uh, justice. They will reap exactly what it is that they have sown. Now, with bowl three, uh, two and three, this represents a catastrophic devastation uh, of the world in touching all of these waters. You probably have heard the fact that our oceans are referred to as the lungs of the earth. Uh, virtually all oxygen in the world comes forth from those, uh, from those oceans. And, and here all of that is going to be uh, crippled as a result. In bowl number four in verses eight and nine, the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. Power is given uh, to him to scorch men uh, with fire, the fire of the sun, the heat of it. The result is that men will be scorched with great heat. The sun will scorch people so badly that it will, uh, it will be uh, on a par with somebody uh, receiving a burn related to uh, a fire. And so here they're given a little bit of a taste of, of hell, a foretaste, and uh, it doesn't produce any humility or repentance on their part. In fact, their response is given at the end of verse 9. It's a threefold response. They will blaspheme God. They will curse God uh, at this time. So, and the interesting thing about this is it tells us that they're not atheists. 
And it tells us they're not, not agnostics. It's not that they, they, they believe God exists. They have no doubt in their, uh, their mind at all. And not only do they believe that God exists, but they, they believe in this God, the God of the Bible, that is pouring this judgment uh, out uh, uh, upon uh, them. They, they acknowledge that He is the source of these uh, judgments. And also that God is greater than them, greater than the Antichrist that they uh, worship by virtue of the fact that they cannot protect themselves from this judgment, and nor can the Antichrist and, and the, the false prophet protect themselves either. I mean, any sane person at this point would just cry, uncle, and uh, say, I, I give up, I repent, I turn to you, God, I'm stopping my, my sin and my rebellion, and yet they refuse to repent. And all of this testifies to the fact that there is still, uh, there is uh, personal responsibility behind the, the rejection and, and the continuation of God's judgment, uh, their personal responsibility behind uh, all of that. Now, this failure to repent is mentioned repeatedly in, in this uh, chapter uh, as marking the world's population at, at that time. In other words, no matter what God does, no matter what uh, He does to humble them or to break them, they simply will not give up their sin. They will not give up their self-will. They will not give up uh, their rebellion against God and their hatred against God. We're told further that they will not give God glory. In other words, they will not give up their pride and give God the place in their life that only God is worthy of and do. They will continue to hold on to that themselves. And they'd rather die than repent of the practice of their sins and pride and surrender to God. This group of people... Uh, they will hate God. And sometimes it can be, though I think we're learning uh, a little bit more than we understood 20 years ago, but sometimes it can be hard for Christians to understand and even non-Christians who are average people to understand uh, that there are people who hate God and they are determined to war against Him and war against His people. They hate God. And that's the way uh, that it is. It isn't that they can't be saved. They are not interested in that in any, in any way. And so when we we find these kind of people in power in our public institutions in the United States of America. It can be very, very hard uh, to understand why do they do what they do? They're going to make the whole place burn down on top of them. How can they be so irrational to make these decisions in, in, in rebellion against God and what He intends government to be, and so forth and so forth, and it is that they hate God. Now, as frustrating as that kind of person can be in a public life, it is much harder when you have such a person in your family, or in your workplace, or in your school, 
or in your neighborhood. And so more and more as we share the gospel with people, you run into people who are in that kind of place in their attitude uh, toward, uh, toward God. And we might be able to, to think of some as it relates to our own uh, family members and, uh, and, uh, and our friends who are not yet Christians in terms of, of the seal judgment and then the trumpet judgment and the bowl judgments. And, uh, and if they are left behind after the rapture occurs and we wonder, well, you know, you can think about uh, aunt whoever and uncle so whoever in our, our minds and, and try to think of when in the course of those judgments will they turn possibly to God during the tribulation period? And the, because there will be a lot of them that will do that. I, I'm convinced that there will be a, a, a huge number of people that the moment the rapture occurs and Christians are gone, they're going to know they're in trouble. They're going to have been raised in the church. They know enough about all of these kind of things. And yet, and they believe all of that. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus Christ and His existence. They just have thought that they would give their life to Him one day. And then this happens. And when you're in that kind of a category, I'm convinced they'll make a beeline uh, to the Lord at that time and become a tribulation saint. And then we have family members that we can look at, and, you know, they're numbskulls like we were before we became Christians. And just a little thick-headed and, and, and hard-hearted. And so it'll be in the course of the seal judgments or in the course of the trumpet judgments. But layer by layer, people will, their eyes will be opened up and they'll realize, what am I doing fighting against a God that, uh, that has, uh, I have no hope of being victorious against and that the gods that are being worshipped on the world, in the world have uh, no power in resisting him uh, at, at all either. And then I think some of them will come to know the Lord when they hear uh, the gospel being heralded by that angel to every person or maybe when it's the Antichrist demands that the mark of the beast be, be taken. But with this group, they will not turn no matter what. And they will demonstrate through these bold judgments that nothing can move them. There is nothing that God can do, and they would rather die than to turn to Him. And it, it, it really is amazing what people can come to believe once they've rejected the truth. And you see it all of the time. Uh, that, that, that somehow I can rebel against God and hope to prevail uh, as they do, uh, despite all of the evidence con contrary, uh, to, uh, 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 contrary to, the, to the fact. You and I can't keep ourselves from getting COVID. You, we can't keep ourselves from getting the common cold. And I mention it every so often, but you get to a certain age, and I hit it at about age 20, where you walk over to your dresser drawer and you open it up, and you got to hold those navy blue socks and the black socks up to the light to know which one you've got so you don't go out of the house wearing one or the other. And I'm going to fight God and have a hope of winning, and yet they dig in in, in this, this kind of, of a way. Now, somewhere in all of this, God is going to give 
these kind of people over to a delusion. You remember when God dealt with Egypt, uh, he brought these plagues upon them, and then we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against God. He hardened his heart against God. He hardened his heart against God. And then there came a point in which God hardened his heart. He confirmed Pharaoh in the position that he had uh, taken. And, uh, and the same thing is going to happen at some point in the tribulation period. I'll read the passage that speaks to it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to, and speaking of Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, uh, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And even today, way before all of these, these things occur, when a person hears God's assessment of their life, that we are sinners and that our sin has separated us from the relationship with God that we've been created for. And then God lets us know about the solution He has provided to us related to the catastrophe of that condition in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And when a person hears that offer from God to be saved by putting my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I'm going to do something with that. I'm either going to receive that truth and then make that salvation my, my own, or I'm going to say no to it. And what is required to say no to God's offer and to His assessment of us is to harden our heart to do so. And then the next time we hear the gospel again and we say no because we, we want to still engage in self-will and in our own sin or whatever it might be, and we say no again. And progressively, we are hardening our heart to the gospel as we go along. And every time we do the next time in order to get saved, it, takes, it is even harder for that to, to occur. And so the danger of hardening the heart. And then what happens so often is a person says no to God through a childhood, through youth, through young adult, or whatever it might be. And then later on in life, um, uh, while earlier in their life they gave some consideration to God, some consideration to uh, their soul, some consideration to Jesus, and now nothing. And now it doesn't impact them at all. But we can convince ourselves that it's because now we're a little more educated, a little more intellectual uh, than we once were. Or now I have a little broader life experience than I once had. And that's what's at the core uh, of, of my uh, rejection. When in fact, God says, it is uh, that, that the disinterest occurs now because I have hardened my heart so many times to God. It is a privilege to hear God's voice. We are not giving Him a break 
when we listen to the gospel, it is a privilege for him to speak to us about the condition of our souls and the danger we are in, and then to speak of the gift of his son. You have to, as a human being, as a part of his creation, what we must do in our heart to say no to that, what our attitude must be toward God puts, is very dangerous, and it puts us in a dangerous place. And so that, that deception that can uh, so often uh, occur, and that's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, not just because we are not guaranteed another day, uh, and none of us are guaranteed another day. We're not even guaranteed the rest of today. But because we have, uh, it, it, our hearts will never be softer toward God's voice in our lives and toward His gospel than we are today. And then to heed His voice and to receive His assessment, but then to receive His salvation. Bowl number 5 in verses uh, 10 and 11, the fifth angel pours out his bowl on uh, the throne uh, of the beast. And the result is, is the Antichrist, his kingdom, becomes full of darkness. Of course, Satan is uh, the, the prince of darkness. And so if man wants darkness, he wants moral darkness, he wants spiritual darkness uh, at that time, then that's what they're, they're uh, going to have. But they'll have physical darkness uh, on top of it to drive home uh, the darkness of their heart to them. Do you notice the response of the ungodly there at the end of uh, verse 10 and then into verse 11? They will gnaw uh, their tongues because uh, of the pain, and then finally they repent. No, unfortunately, that's not what happens. This is quite a group, and, uh, and there are going to be a lot of them. They will blaspheme the God of heaven for their pains and their sores, and for the consequences of their decisions. Have you ever known people who blame and reject God for all of the problems in their life that they have brought on themselves by their own decisions? It is such a terrible, terrible deception, and it will mark this period in the tribulation period. But it won't just be dangerous then. It is dangerous now. And if I have rejected God repeatedly uh, because of the consequences of my own decisions uh, in, my, in my life, and I've blamed Him and, and allowed that to keep me from coming to know Him, then I need to be aware uh, of that. This is going to be prevalent uh, during the tribulation uh, period. It's also interesting to notice how upset they will be with God when he fails to bless them and make them comfortable in his rebel- their rebellion against him. And the idea, I mean, you talk about a sense of entitlement being off the graph. They want his food. They want his air. Uh, they want his water. They want fresh food. They want all of these things, God, to supply all of his blessings uh, to them so they can continue their rebellion against him. And so God is going to turn off the spigot, which, of course, he has, has to do. 
and then they're upset about it. You think, you think that a, 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 the attitude of entitlement is strong in our culture, and it is, is nothing like what is going to be the attitude of people at this time in justifying their rejection of God. And bowl number six is in verses 12 through 16. And the sixth angel uh, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And the result is that the waters of the river Euphrates are dried up. And uh, for the purpose of the kings of the east, uh, that it might be prepared. So uh, we know that there's going to come a great army at this point of the tribulation period. It's going to come out of Asia. Could be out of China, could be Japan, uh, could be India, could be none of those and something else. We don't know. But a large army is going to come out of the east. I mean, you look at what the condition of the world will be at this time under the leadership of the Antichrist, you're going to get some rebellion. And so this army comes out of the east to come against the Antichrist in order to engage him uh, in battle and what will, would uh, ultimately desiring that to happen and, and try to anyway in a place called Armageddon. And so they'll come across and that Euphrates River will need to be dried up in order for that to happen. Now somebody might protest, I don't know how many Euphrates River experts we have in the room today. This is your, this is your uh, sideline in your life. But the river Euphrates, you could look at it and say, what's this big pole judgment needed to dry up the river Euphrates? It's dry half the time now. I mean, it, it, the, the Turks and the river Euphrates starts in Turkey. The Turks put up a dam a long time ago, the Ataturk Dam, and, uh, and that's the origin for the Euphrates River. And uh, so they've got it down to a trickle half the time. And, uh, and so why does there need to be any uh, divine control of, of the river? Man can take care of that himself. But remember, the main source for the Euphrates River is the snowmelt that comes down from the mountains that are in the northeastern part uh, of, of Turkey. And I, and I don't think it's entirely unlikely at all that the scorching sun judgment of bowl four is going to produce a dramatic uh, and immediate snow melt uh, off of those mountains that is going to overwhelm any dam in its place uh, and, and uh, in its path and require this miracle to accomplish the drying of the Euphrates for the movement of this military force. In verses 13 through 16, we're given some additional information concerning uh, this nearing battle of Armageddon that we'll find out about in chapter 19. John sees three unclean spirits like frogs coming out, first one out of the mouth of the devil, one out of the mouth of the Antichrist, and then one out of the mouth of the, the false prophet. Uh, frogs are unclean animals under the law of Moses. And these three frogs are demons that are going to go out to influence the kings of the earth to gather them together for the battle of Armageddon. So these three great armies at least, Antichrist's army, a battle out of the, a, a, a military out of the north, and then a military out of the east, we know from other scriptures, they're going to gather together for uh, that, uh, in, in the Valley of Megiddo for that, that battle. And they will uh, intend upon engaging uh, 
one another uh, uh, initially and, uh, and defeat the armies of Antichrist and overthrow him, the, the armies from the north and from the east. But you ask yourself a question. Now, why would Satan draw the armies of the world to fight against his man, to fight against the Antichrist? Why would he do that? And it's probably because he realizes or will realize that Jesus' second coming is at the door and the only hope that he feels that he has is in gathering all of the armies of the world together to fight against Jesus when he does return. There'll be more on that when we get to chapter uh, uh, 19. But the battle doesn't really go very well for any of them that gather together there. You might notice uh, uh, just a hint of it in verse 14 at the end that the day is not called the day of uh, evil spirits or the day of the rulers of the great armies, but it's called that great day of God Almighty. That's who's going to be great on, on that day. Now, in verse 15, Jesus encourages the tribulation saints uh, who are alive at that time, and uh, they are going to, again, doubtless be avid readers of the book of Revelation at that time, and he gives them an encouragement. He's coming as a thief, not to them. He won't be unexpected for them, but coming as a thief to the uh, unbelieving world, and that they need to be aware and, uh, and uh, uh, continue to watch for him and to continue to walk in holiness. And then the, finally, this brings us to bowl 7 and verses uh, uh, 17 through 21. This angel now pours out his bowl in the air. A great voice, as we've seen, comes out of the temple of heaven uh, from the throne of God saying, it's done. This finishes God's judgment uh, associated with the tribulation period of of the seal and uh, trumpet and bold judgments. And then all of this is then followed in verse 18 by noises and thunderings and lightnings. And then we're told in verses 18 through 20, there's going to be an earthquake the size of which the world has never experienced before. Strongest earthquake in human history. And to give you some sense of how strong it will be, the prophet Isaiah writes of it in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 19. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. And the earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter uh, like a hut. Now that's an earthquake. And that's what's coming. We're told in verse 19 that the city of Babylon uh, here is mentioned as a special object of God's wrath Uh, in addition to many other cities. We'll discover why in the next couple of weeks when we get into chapter 17 and in chapter 18. Um, And so uh, it's also possible that as he talks about Babylon here, that he may not be talking about uh, uh, Babylon itself. It may be a reference to Jerusalem. It may be a reference to Rome because uh, all three of those cities are referred to in the Revelation uh, as, as Babylon. And, uh, and so, but he has them picked, uh, picked out for special judgment. And then in verse 20, we're told that every island 
uh, fled away and the mountains were not found. So if you have a trip planned to Hawaii, get that knocked out uh, as soon as you can. We say, how in the world can that happen? We imagine an earthquake like the world has never known before. And, uh, and uh, th- that is like the world breaking and the kind of tsunamis that will be released in every body of water on the face of the earth. And it will overwhelm not only the islands, uh, but even uh, mountains on the earth. And then great hail, we're told in verse 21, will fall upon men. So whoever uh, and whatever survives the earthquake, uh, this comes down on them. Each uh, hailstone is, will weigh a talent. Uh, that's a hundred pounds. We don't, man, human beings do not, have not built anything on the face of this earth that can withstand a, a hail shower uh, like that. It will utterly devastate um, everything. And of course, it's very, very poetic justice in that in the Old Testament, uh, stoning was uh, the price for blaspheming God. And so God does it in this way and uh, he will stone it. They refuse his son, they refuse his grace, and so he'll deal with them then according to the law uh, of Moses. And yet still, they will blaspheme God. And so that's what's coming down. That's what's coming to human history. It's one thing to sit, and you've been very patient with me, thank you. You always are. At least you don't show it on your face. One thing to read it on the pages of Scripture. It's another thing to realize and to picture it in your mind, these things taking place. And yet they will. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall in no wise pass away. And I am very thankful that God will not allow this and these people to ultimately and finally prevail in human history, but will rise up and He will judge them and He will bring all evil and rebellion against Him to an end. I don't have any problem with that. Because again, given the two choices, who in their right mind would take the alternative as if we've been given two choices? So the key is to be on the right side of God and on the right side of this judgment. Not just in those days. It gives us another reason to say thank you, Jesus, for being a Christian and that we'll be removed before all of this occurs because we're not appointed unto wrath. But to look and to say to God and, and to realize, as this is coming, to realize how seriously He views His voice speaking to us of our need, how invaluable He views the offer of salvation in, in, his, in his Son, and then to realize how strongly He will deal with 
uh, sin and rebellion and pride and self-will that is determined not to turn to Him. It's not a game. It's not a game. I think we live in a country in a lot of respects. I mean, we elect presidents so often, or, or public officials. We, it's, like, it's like we're electing homecoming kings and queens. It's just like, oh, I like them. Can they do their job? Have they ever had a job like this one? That they're, and, and so we still play as if this is a big game because there's like the, the margin still to be able to do so. But it's not a game. And the decisions in life are um, life and death important. And no decision is more important than what I do with Christ and God's offer of a Savior to me. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, don't harden your heart one more time to His offer. There are going to be men and women, pastors up in front immediately after the service. They'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin a personal relationship with God today. Not just to escape this, but to be escaped from this, to have heaven is my confidence for after this life, to be able to walk with God and know God, the peace, the joy, the fulfillment of that, all the way through this life, to have a God that is bigger than all of my problems, and I am my biggest problem. And so, all of these things, God loves you. God loves you like nobody else in the world even remotely loves you. If your name is mud in your family, in every workplace you've ever been, nobody wants anything to do with you, He still loves you. And He wants to save you today. And today is the day of salvation. If you've never been saved before, come forward and receive God's gift. If you need prayer for anything in your life today, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for your voice. Thank you that you even speak to us. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for caring about our souls long before we ever cared one bit about them. Thank you for how, not through seal and trumpet and bold judgments, but through difficulties in our own life, good things, bad things, things that you used as you just patiently walked alongside of us until the day our eyes would open up to you in our blindness. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your patience represented in our salvation. Again, we close the same way we began. Thank you for being our God and the privilege of being a Christian. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.